All right, all right. Welcome back to another week of A Little More Good, bringing that goodness into your earbuds wherever you may be. I am super excited for this episode this week. Dean, how about you? Yes, yes, yes. This is going to be a good one. We are very, very lucky to have uh, had the opportunity to sit down with the one and only Dr. Russell Kennedy, um, a- an amazing speaker, teacher, practitioner of all things anxiety. Yes, this was a, a very transformative conversation for myself. I learned a lot about anxiety about where it exists in our body, where it originates, how to deal with it, how to heal it, how to cope with it, um, steps to moving past our anxiety and healing it for the long term. So yeah, as Dean mentioned, Dr. Russell Kennedy, he's based here in Victoria, BC, Canada. He's a physician, a neuroscientist, a somatic intuitive, a certified yoga instructor, a meditation teacher. And uh, he's even done some professional stand-up comedy in his time. We didn't get too into into the jokes. We did have a couple of dad jokes along the way. Um, But he has has had an incredible journey himself in becoming the expert that he is um, from experimenting with psychedelics to, you know, traveling the world, learning meditation, yoga, and other ancestral practices to the more traditional Western approach as a physician and neuroscientist. He's really become a, a master, which I, I don't say lightly, of understanding anxiety. And I think he is one of the leaders in the forefront of healing and treating our own anxieties with how it shows up in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, really appreciate uh, Dr. Kennedy and the work that he does because he's not only like the practitioner, you know, comes in with information and you know wisdom and knowledge but experience as someone you know as he's talked about like dealt with anxiety for decades and then not just coping and managing strategies but really getting to the root cause and bringing about healing in the lives of people who experience anxiety on all uh, the varied levels that it manifests and shows up in our lives. But um, very, very interestingly, Dr. Kennedy talks about how all anxiety stems from um, pretty much one root source, which we get into on the podcast. So that was super interesting. I feel like we learned so much. I feel like it's obviously a a very important and timely topic for the world that we live in. We're bombarded constantly with things that trigger our anxieties, whether it's social situations or the perpetual news cycle that we live in and, you know, just the, the kind of hurry and hustle of our everyday world, um, learning strategies uh, and these new kind of methods to understand the complexity of our anxiety is always, always, always an important and useful conversation. So we dive into pretty much all things anxiety. Where does it come from? Where does it, where does, where do we embody it? How do we, uh, how do we treat it and move forward from it? Uh, it's a pretty enlightening conversation. I dare say it was revolutionary for myself in approaching how anxiety shows up for myself. So uh, without rambling on too much, I'm super excited for you guys to tune into this one. I know I will be tuning in uh, again to learn and relearn from Dr. Kennedy's teachings. Um, 
Dean, or anything else you want to go over before we let this one roll? Well, I think, uh, yeah, just that's just it. It's like, you know, we record these episodes and some of them are, are interesting in terms of like entrepreneurs and beautiful stories that I always want to go back to and listen again. But every once in a while, we have these episodes that are really, really, I think, foundational practices in how to understand how to be like healthier, better versions of ourselves than we were, you know, previously on our journey. And I think that, like you said, this is one of those episodes that you can come back to time and time again to kind of recheck and dial in. And so very grateful for the conversation and excited to let this one roll. All right. Before we let this episode start, we've got some exciting news. This week's episode was brought to you by our our good sponsor, Athletic Greens. AG1 by Athletic Greens is my daily morning ritual packed with all of the goodness, 75 plus nutrients, mushrooms. It's got the probiotics, the prebiotics, everything you need to start your day with healthy habits. Uh, It's been my go-to habit for a long time now. I've got my whole family on it. Uh, My kids love to throw it into their smoothies. Uh, My wife loves to, you know, squeeze a little lemon into it. We've all got kind of our own custom rituals with AG1 by Athletic Greens. how about yourself, Dina? Yeah, it's a good daily habit. Just that first thing in the morning, a little a little routine, a little micro habit, mini ritual that sets you up for success for the rest of the day. And I know that I can feel good about it, putting uh, nothing but these high quality ingredients into my body to fuel my body to start my day off right and knowing that it's a, it's a habit that costs less than like a daily coffee. So you think about investments into your health, There's some things that are just absolutely worth the price of admission. And for me, Athletic Greens is that. And for our dear listeners of A Little More Good, Athletic Greens wants to hook you up and make it easy for you to get on the AG1 bandwagon, get on that wake and shake, do a little good for yourself every day to make it easy for you to jump on the bandwagon. Athletic Greens is going to give you one Free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash more good. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash more good to take ownership over your health and get that ultimate daily health insurance. All right, there we go. On to this week's episode with Dr. Russell Kennedy. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. We're we're very happy to have you all join us and especially happy to have our guest with us today join us virtually. We're, we're kind of just a, a skip across uh, the old pond here on the west coast of BC, um, us here in, in Richmond, right on the uh, edge of the river, and our guest, Dr. Russell Kennedy, joining us from the beautiful Victoria, BC. So thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for jumping on the pod with us today. Um, we're really looking forward to diving in with you. And we know from some of the conversations we've had with listeners and just from ourselves that, um, well, at, at least I think people are going to be like really anxious to hear this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's my goal. But uh, yeah, thanks, boys. Let's, let's, let's do it. Let's light this candle. All right. I'm, I'm excited to dive into all things anxiety, but I feel like we should be having a conversation about aging because I just found out that you're somehow a grandfather and I felt I thought we were this around the same age so okay well I can tell you the process of how I became a grandfather but that's (laughs) probably a little my daughter my daughter's 37 so you know and she has two kids that are five and three now 
and you know grandkids really keep you young you get a chance to go in there and and do all the things that you wanted to do with your kid although leandra and i did tons of stuff together like we were so bonded her and i um and her kids are great you know it's so much fun to be able to go over there and and just hang out with them and uh, angus is a real boy he's three and he plays with trucks and that sort of stuff and abby is like a wonder kid as far as language goes she's using like full sentences with full inflections and stuff like you, you know you're talking to this five-year-old who's actually in the 99th percentile for her height so she's very tall and she's very well spoken so you think that you're talking to a kid that's a lot older than what she is so so they're they're tons of fun they really are that's awesome. amazing well we'll get into your fountain of youth uh, another time Sure. Um, for today, you know, I feel like um, we were struggling as a society with anxiety before the pandemic, but I feel totally. like that was really the hammer on the nail. And, um, you know, people like myself, like Dean, that maybe didn't struggle with anxiety before. Now it's become a part of our lives. And I think it's become systemically a part of how communities, you know, interact on the emotional uh, level now and I think we're all trying to to fix this to fix ourselves to fix the communities so that we can you know get back to love get back to creating in ways that serve both us and and bigger communities so I thought just as like a, a, a diving board we could maybe start with with your journey um, as a child yeah, sure. and um, kind of go through your experience growing up to becoming a medical doctor and a neuroscientist and really becoming an expert on this field um, through a multitude of cultures and experiences from traditional medicine to uh, exploring plant medicine and other, other cultures and other countries. Um, it might be a bit of a, a longer tale, but um, would love to hear kind of from your childhood to, to, yeah. to that. I'll give you the, the short version. So my mother was a rather reserved uh, British nurse from Glasgow, emigrated over here in 1958. My father was a radio announcer, uh, but my dad was schizophrenic and bipolar and just got worse and worse as, as I got older. So I learned that um, trusting love wasn't safe. We're just diving right in here. I'm, I'm giving you the short Coles nose version of this. So, so I learned that, that I had to sort of separate from him to be safe. Not that he was ever abusive or violent, but when you see your dad kind of lose touch with reality, it's pretty disturbing for a boy, especially the oldest boy in the family too. So I got really paranoid that I was going to develop schizophrenia. So that started my anxiety that kicked it off when I was about 15 or 16. And then I would tell myself, well, if you make it to 25 and you're not schizophrenic, you're probably going to be fine. If you make it to 30, you're probably going to find if you're going to make it to 35. So I got to 35 and it's like, okay, I'm probably not going to be schizophrenic, but I developed a huge anxiety issue on top of everything else. So it is one of those things where you just kind of um, look at your life and you go, what what could have changed? You know, what could have been easier for me? And it would have been a lot easier had I had a dad who was functional, a lot more functional. Although there was lots of times in my life that he was really functional and taught me how to ride a bike and hit a baseball and, and do all the things that dads do. But there's also times that he was quite psychotic and I couldn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on as a child. So it really set the stage for me to not have a very secure attachment with my father. And my mother was, you know, she's caring and, and, and 
you know, she put a roof over our heads and that kind of thing. And I don't want to make her out to be some sort of cold hearted person, but, but she didn't really get this from her family. She didn't really get sort of love, care, attention, affection. So it was hard for her to give that out to, to me and my brother. So all anxiety is separation anxiety on some level, and it's mostly separation from yourself. So what I think happens is that we experience a trauma that's too much for us to bear as children. We stuff that trauma down. Freud would call it repression, you know, like, and we push it down into the unconscious. And as the body is a representation of the unconscious mind, a lot of that alarm energy gets stored in our body. And if we look for it, we can find it. Like for me, I found my alarm energy in my solar plexus. And I only found it after doing LSD. I'm really giving you kind of like a, a roundabout sort of, it's okay, we can wa- you know, waiver. Yeah. So, so, so basically after LSD, I saw that my anxiety had much more to do with this old alarm energy held in my body than my mind. My mind was basically just a reflector of this. And I think what happens when we have trauma as children, A, we tend to blame ourselves. We don't, we can't blame our parents because they're the ones that are looking after us. So we tend to blame ourselves and that starts the split, this internal split. Some people call it internal critic or inner critic. Um, And I think we start judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming ourselves as children. And then that creates this tremendous amount of alarm in our system. And that alarm is what feeds the anxious thoughts. And unless we deal with the alarm directly, unless we find that younger version of ourselves that and, and see them, hear them, love them, and show them they're protected, we're always going to be kind of chasing our tails with anxiety. And the pandemic, you know, basically just supercharged everything because if all anxiety, separation anxiety, there was a huge amount of separation that went on from the pandemic. And people that were going along okay uh but had a tendency towards anxiety got kind of pushed over the edge so there's a lot more anxiety as a general rule going on now because of such deep separation and if you look at the states you look at the division you look at the way that the that people are sort of at each other's throats we go into this survival based mentality and when you're in survival you can't connect and connection and love and and being feeling like you're felt feeling like you're understood by another person is how we heal so we're getting more and more separate from each other and then wondering why we why we can't heal so that's 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 the short version that that's the that's the cole's notes of where i came from yeah well firstly th- thank you for sharing that i mean i think it's really helpful in hearing other people's stories we can start to see like pieces of ourself in that to say, oh, I had a similar experience with maybe not a dad who suffered in, in that way, but was, you know, not present or um, abandoned us or walked out or whatever it might have been. And those those causes, those actions might be different, but the effect in us could be very similar. And so I think by yeah. sharing our stories, it really helps us to see. Um, well, totally. there's lots in there that we can we can jump into. Something that I'm really curious about is um, you talked about like a, an LSD experience that helped you understand like where that anxiety was coming from like what the root of that was how how does that work because i think we often yeah. you know there's lots of there's lots of conversation around psychedelics and stuff now in in the news and okay it's helping people with depression and we typically demonize these things and say you know drugs are bad but how mm-hmm. can perhaps they be tools that that we can utilize in a safe way an effective way not just like recreationally yeah. but to say hey here's here's how this has helped me see myself and learn something that really helped me grow and move forward. Can you touch on that experience and what yeah, that was sure. like? I mean, I think we developed this ego in us when we're younger, which is basically for protection. So that ego 
its job is to make sure you never do anything that hurts you again. So if you're in your sixth grade class and you're presenting something and you make a fool of yourself or whatever, and, and all your classmates laugh at you, your ego at that point will go, you are never speaking in front of people ever again, right? So your ego is protective. So the only way you're going to get over that fear of speaking is to actually go and do it again and, and, and go through it, right? But your ego won't let you do that. One of the things that psychedelics do is they paralyze the part of the brain. We think it might be posterior cingulate, somewhere in the default mode network of the brain that kind of holds that protective ego, right? So what psychedelics do is they paralyze that part of the brain. So they paralyze the ego. The good part about that is it allows you to really face what, what your trauma is. The bad part of it is some of us had really bad traumas. So that's why I don't really recommend psychedelics for people with anxiety because I think it does shove your face right into your trauma. And for some people that can be kind of like a trial by fire and it can be helpful, but for many people, especially with anxiety, it makes them worse. I mean, I know for about two years after ayahuasca and LSD, I wasn't quite right. Like I did that. I did those things in 2013. It's hard to believe it's like 10 years ago now. Um, and it just, I wasn't quite right for two years and, but it did, it did show me, it wasn't like the psychedelics gave me this like, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, I'm saved. I didn't give me anything like that. Uh, but it did give me this insight that what I was calling anxiety in my mind was actually this state of alarm that was held in my body from dealing with my father's antics as a, you know, bipolar schizophrenic. So I realized that that's what the cause of my anxiety was. And there's this process called interoception. And basically interoception is when the mind is constantly reading the body. So if you have this old alarm energy that's stuck in your body, the mind's constantly reading that. And if you're doing okay, if your life's going okay, your relationship's going okay, you can probably keep that in the background. But once things start going badly, that alarm will start to rise up again. The mind will read the body and go, hey, we're alarmed. What do we have to be alarmed about? And then it starts making worries. And then it starts, and then you believe the worries because you freaking made them up. So we create these, these terrible worries. And of course, that just makes the alarm worse. That just stresses us out and makes the alarm worse. And then the alarm gets worse. And then the worries get worse because the, the left hemisphere has to make sense of this pain that's in our system. Our mind is a, a make sense, meaning-making machine. So when it feels that alarm, it makes a story that's consistent with how we feel. And then we get into what's called, what I call the alarm anxiety cycle, which is the alarm in our body, which is the old trauma that we're still holding in there, fuels these thoughts. We believe those thoughts, which makes the alarm worse, which makes the, the, the worry. So you get caught in this loop. So the only real way of healing anxiety is to split the alarm sensation in the body from the thoughts of the mind. And that's very difficult because your mind is always trying to tell you that it can think its way out of a feeling problem. And it can't. All it does is it makes it worse. And the last thing I'll say to that is like anxiety is mostly a problem of overthinking. So your mind is going to tell you that if you think more, you'll get out of this trap. And really, it's the problem is overthinking in the first place. Getting you to think more is just causing more of the problem, which is why people have such a hard time recovering and and healing from anxiety. You're, you're the the deck is stacked against you essentially. That that was one of the really profound takeaways that I've had from your work is the healing anxiety below the neck versus above the neck, and I think a lot yeah. of the modalities that I've understood in the past. Uh, maybe some more traditional therapy, you know, talk therapy, 
to talk through these problems and try mm-hmm. to almost rewire or hack your thought pattern to, to kind of take a new course when the anxiety alarm comes up. Can we get into your modality of, of healing from the neck down, the kind of the embodied anxiety that we, um, that we experience from, from childhood separation and how we can find it in our body and then how we can heal it in our body? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, we are cognitive beings. We have these huge prefrontal cortices that uh, have this tremendous amount of imagination. And I read this quote the other day, and I can't remember who who said it, but it was something along the lines of, you know, uh, anxiety is the price we pay for our imagination, our incredible imagination. So it's like we can imagine all these horrible things happening. So I think it's really learning, okay, what's happening in my system? Where is my alarm? So what I'll do with people is when I, when I see them in, in as patients or whatever, I don't do a lot of patient work now, but I do see one or two people a, a week kind of in this sort of um, consultation mode. And basically what we'll do is we'll go into your trauma history and then I'll dip your toe in that trauma. So say, say your mother was narcissistic and you never got the love that you needed, right? So I'll say, okay, well, let's, you know, can you, can you handle going back into that first? Can you handle going back into that? Cause I don't like taking people into the worst trauma of their life. I'll take them into a trauma that has some salience to them, but nothing that's really going to, you know, cause them to collapse or anything like that. And they'll say, okay, you know, I can handle it. And I say, look, if this starts to get too intense for you, just tell me, you know, and we'll, we'll go into something else. So I'll say, bring, bring to mind something that your, your mother did. It's like, well, there was one time that my mother was supposed to, I played lacrosse and my mother was, it was our turn to bring the oranges for the team because every week at the practice, one of the mothers would bring the oranges and she wouldn't bring the oranges. And he said, you know, the amount of shame and, you know, heartache from just having this, this mother that just did not help him. And I said, okay, well, where do you feel that? And it's like, okay, well, I'm shortening this quite a bit, but basically like in upper throat, um, kind of, uh, into my sort of sternum kind of, it's a hot, like, I will ask you, is it, where is it? How is it? How big is it? You know, does it have a texture? Does it have a color? So I go into all these things and we found out from him, it's a sharp burning, hot, uh, pressure that's in his, his upper sternum and, and throat. And it's like, okay, can we put our hand on that? Can we just see it? Can you see that as your younger self? Because we have these structures in our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala kind of mediates just about every fear reaction that human beings have. And it couples situations that happened to us when we were children with emotion. So it's coupled this embarrassment with this feeling in his body, into, into his throat. And there's part of him that's still stuck there. Like basically that's when, because the amygdala has no sense of time. So the hippocampus, which kind of time date stamps our memories so that when we remember something, we kind of know, oh yeah, that happened 10 years ago. The amygdala has no sense of reference that way. So if we get an emotional memory that's encoded by the amygdala, it feels like it's, ha- it feels like it's still happening when we bring it in. So with him, that's exactly what happened. It's like, you know, I'm starting to feel this flush in my body. It's like, okay, are you okay staying there? You know, what happened? It's like, well, you know, the other kids kind of were looking around like, okay, you know, who was supposed to bring the oranges? Who was like, you know, and I was just mortified. 
Like I was just mortified that my mother just sort of shirked on this deal. And it's like, okay, can we feel that? Because part of you is still stuck there. You know, can we bring this out? Can we find this in your body? Can, put, can you put your hand over that area in your throat? How does that feel? It's like, it feels a little better when I put my hand over it. Okay, put your other hand on top of your first hand. You know, really, let's take a second. Let's breathe into this. Let's really sort of see that that this is okay, that you're comforting this younger, wounded part of yourself. And then I want you to realize, you know, put your feet flat on the floor, feel your butt in the chair. I really want you to see that you aren't back there. You are actually in the present day. You know, you're a 60-year-old guy in the present moment. Okay. Okay. Now let's go back into that trauma again. Let's go back into the, you know, the oranges aren't there, the embarrassment. So I would take him back and forth. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going through this much faster than I would if I was with him. But what we're doing is we're showing your unconscious mind or showing his unconscious mind that he's not back there anymore. So we're kind of, we're, we're getting the hippocampus back involved because the hippocampus kind of time dates down that memory. And it's like, okay, now he has more of a sense that that happened in the past. It's not still happening now. But a lot of us walk around with wounds that are still happening now. And we do feel like they're still happening now. And that's, and that's what we have to try and treat. Because if we are coming from that childhood place of feeling helpless and powerless, which often we were as children, because our adults had all the power, we will go back to that place when our amygdala kind of triggers us into something similar happening. We will go back to that same place and feel exactly the same way through our body that we then that we do now. And then that tracks us back into this place. And then, of course, the mind gets in there and and starts making up all sorts of worries about his taxes and that his relationship isn't going that well and whatever. And his taxes and his relationship had nothing to do with what with this old trauma. But it's basically the trauma is is searching for a logical reason as to why he feels this pain. And that's what we do. We look around at our present day environment for what's what's our past trauma. And we and we'll always find it. You know, you can always find I'm having trouble with my partner or my dog sick or whatever. You can always find something in your present day environment. But we have this saying called just like when. And when people when people have this alarm, it's like, okay, do you remember having this alarm? in the past, like this feeling in your body, do you, do you remember like, just like when something else happened? And it's like, oh yeah, I remember when I was, you know, in, in grade five and, and the teacher smacked me in the back of the head. It's like, yeah, I felt that same kind of pain. So it's really about how can we find these alarms in our system? How can we, and how can we treat them as a version of our younger self that's still alive to, to use a term and causing this trauma that the mind has to do something with. And usually what it will do is it'll make up worries about what's happening in your present day environment that really have nothing to do with what's happening in your present day environment. It's all about what happened to you back then that your mind, especially your left hemisphere, is trying to make sense out of. And of course we believe it. So, you know, the the cycle continues. Yeah, <laughs> that's, I'm just thinking like uh, some of the, the connections that I'm making as you're, as you're saying, this is so, so fascinating. And I think really wonderful uh, and refreshing for people to hear that there, there's a distinction and that, you know, we think time travel is impossible and yet we can, we can go back and we can remind ourselves we're not back in those moments. And just even what you said at the end there, how, 
you, you know, oftentimes the anxieties, the real, the real anxieties or stressors in our life today are not the actual thing that's fueling mm-hmm. our anxiety. And, and so many times I think, you know, the times when you're frustrated with your spouse or partner or closest people to you, you're not actually upset about that yeah. relationship, but that's just where it manifests. Like that's where it kind of shows its its face. Um, recently, I've been reading um, Dr. Gabor Mate's recent book, the the myth of normal, and I oh, it's actually yeah, I just finished it. Yeah, yeah it's, great. it's incredible. It's incredible, yeah. and I was so fortunate to hear him speak just last weekend. Um, and he talks about in the book. You'll be familiar, like the idea that that trauma is something that happened to you, but it's like our, our response is what happens within us. And that's what we carry. Is that similar to anxiety? Like kind of tying back and yeah. using, using that orange example, like the anxiety, the anxiousness that, that is being carried isn't, isn't that there wasn't oranges. Like that was the event, but how we respond to that. Cause someone might be like, Oh, no big deal. Like mom forgot the oranges. Like who cares? Right. Life goes on. And for some of us, we're like, Oh my God, this is devastating. So yeah. is it a similar way that it's what happens within us and how yeah. we store that? Yeah. I mean, normally we're supposed to go back to this sort of this idea of homeostasis, right? So if you had a big, if you go to Dairy Queen and you eat a blizzard, you know, in about four hours or five hours, hopefully your system will bring your blood sugar normal back to normal again, right? But if you have diabetes and you have insulin resistance, then that blood sugar doesn't come back to normal again. So it's a similar analogy with with emotional things that it changes our, our nervous system to the point where it doesn't return back to that normal baseline state anymore. So it, yeah, I agree. It's not what happened to you. It's your nervous system's reaction to it. And it kind of leads me into like people ask me, is anxiety genetic? And I say, no, I don't think there's a gene for anxiety per se. What I do think is kind of genetic is our temperament. And I think that people with anxiety almost always have a very sensitive temperament. And if you have a sensitive temperament and you grow up in an environment that is loving and caring and attuned, you'll do fine. But if you have a sensitive temperament and you grow up with a schizophrenic father, uh, that's probably going to lead you into trouble, you know. And and really, my book Anxiety RX is about anxiety, but it's really about childhood trauma. Some people will show up as depression. Some people shows up as eating disorders, personality disorders, OCD. It's it's the same root cause is this nervous system dysregulation. Uh, to the point where we go into this protective mode, the nervous system goes into this protective mode and starts believing the world is in a safe place and I have to be protected from everything, as opposed to this kind of growth growth mode where, uh, you know, I can I can take some trauma, I can take some some problems, and you know because uh, I can talk to my mom about it, I can talk to my dad about it, you know, home is a safe place, you know, things get regulated. Another thing that Gabor talks about is like, who were you able to talk to about this trauma? And almost universally, it's like nobody, nobody. I remember going on a walk with Gabor, like, because we we lived, I lived in Kitsilano. We lived about five minutes away from each other. And this would have been about 15 years ago. And, you know, it talked about the the way that the nervous system changes with trauma and, and how it becomes this sort of protective. And if you look at epigenetics, um, when you have a protective nervous system, the genes for protection will fire up. So your genes for cortisol and epinephrine will upregulate. And your genes for, say, oxytocin and serotonin will kind of downregulate because it's not, you don't really need those as much. So we get these this epigenetic thing where we are more likely to make the proteins of protection 
rather than the proteins of growth, rather than sort of endogenous opioids or dopamine or whatever, will go into this protective phase. And that becomes a habit in your body. And over the course of time, your body physiology definitely affects how you how you think and how you create thoughts and how you create worries. So if your body physiology is out of line, chances are your mind is going to create a bunch of stories that just aren't true. And then the other part of that, the kicker on that is if you look at brain physiology, when we get a big splash of norepinephrine from our locus ceruleus in the brain uh, that fires up our brain and you get a big splash of cortisol, it starts paralyzing the rational part of our brain, right? So not only are we ev evolutionary programmed to create threat when we, when we feel this way, we start looking for threat specifically, but on top of that, we are less likely to be able to discern threat because the part of our the rational part of our mind has been shut off. So we will create these horrible worries and because the rational part of our mind is impaired, they appear more real, which of course creates this whole cascade all over again. And that's why people say, you know, three hours ago, I was just completely petrified of this particular worry and now I'm looking at it in the cold light of day when their body has, has sort of regulated again. And it's like, why did I get so upset about that? You got upset about it because the, the state of your body at the time paralyzed your prefrontal cortex and paralyzed your ability to see that your worry was actually really irrational. So this is the double whammy of human beings is that we create these threats, we create these worries, and we also paralyze the part of the brain that would tell us, hey, this is really nothing to worry about. It's amazing the power of belief, these, yeah. these, these worlds that we can create that are, are just our minds being busy creating, you know, what might not be real in front of us. Yeah. And the power of feeling like knowing, knowing that what I'm feeling in my body, even if it doesn't match my surroundings, like that, that emotion, that sense that I have, like, like you said, we're meaning making machines. Like I need to know why I'm feeling this. And we don't. And go that's back. panic attack. That's what panic attacks are. Like you, you get, you go through this like rush of, of epinephrine and cortisol in your system. Your body is all of a sudden in, you know, on fire. Your heart rate's up. Your blood pressure's up. And you're looking around, and you're like, I'm on the bus. Like there's nothing. There's nothing wrong. And then what your amygdala will do at that point is it will start coupling this horrible feeling with the bus. Now you're afraid of the bus. You know, so so it's 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 just the way, you know, studying the nervous system the way I have and just seeing how things get coupled. There was this story. Um, I'm not sure if it's true, but it, it might be is uh, there was this kid and he was he wanted this teddy bear for Christmas. I want to get this right. And his mother got it for him, pulled it out of the, the, the box or whatever it is, showed it to him. He ran towards it, tripped hit his face on the ground. I don't mean to laugh, hit his face on the ground. And then he developed a phobia of teddy bears after that, because his amygdala had, had, had coupled those two things together. And that's what it does. Cause your brain is always trying to create shortcuts. It's always trying to create programs that allow us to, to take less energy because your brain, you know, it's 3% of your body weight and it takes 20 to 25% of your metabolism, like uh, your energy. So it's always lazy. It's always doing these sort of lazy things. So your brain will give you um, a first expectation of what it thinks is going on. Much of those, a lot of times it's right, 
but many times it's wrong. And then we give it this sort of credibility that it doesn't deserve. And then when we create these worries, we actually believe the worries because we made them up. Well, one thing that you say that I really love is the body will never lie to you, but the mind will. Yeah. I, yeah I, and that's true. So that's going back to tapping into that embodied feeling versus the, the busy mind. So, um, how do we learn to trust our body over our mind? Like what are the steps to be able to, yeah. to lead with how our body's feeling versus what our busy mind's telling us to be true? Yeah, it's practice. You know, it's really, that's why, that's why meditation is so popular. That's why, you know, Qigong, Tai Chi, yoga, it's like getting into your body because anxiety fundamentally is this disconnection of your mind from your body. And the reason why you did that is probably because you had trauma as a child and that trauma is still stored in your body. So you don't want to go down into feeling town. You don't want to go down into your body. So you stay up in your head and you create all these horrible warnings, what ifs and worst case scenarios, because that keeps you out of your body. And that's why, that's why worries tend to get worse and worse and worse over time is because those worries are serving a purpose. They're keeping you out of that feeling state in your body. So it, worries have a, a role of, of helping you in a way in staying out of that alarm as a child. But once you become an adult, then you really have to start looking at the root cause of, of what's causing your anxiety in the first place, which is this state of alarm in your body. And then you have to go back into that, find it, maybe with a therapist, don't do this on your own. If, it's, if you've had major emotional, physical, sexual traumas as, as a child, you can't do this by yourself. Like you need someone to help you do this. And then as you start acclimatizing to this alarm in your system where you're not afraid of it anymore, you don't have to run up into your head anymore, then you can start metabolizing it. Then you can start doing something that actually works on the fundamental root cause of the problem because the worries are not the root cause of the problem. The worries are the byproduct of this old alarm energy that's stuck in your body. It's kind of like if you have a, a, an infection, if you have a viral infection and you have a fever, I can give you Tylenol, big whack of Tylenol to calm down your fever, but it does nothing for the underlying cause. You may feel better, but it does nothing for that viral infection. So it's, it's a similar kind of thing. If you're just treating the thoughts, you're really not treating the, the underlying cause of what's causing your anxiety in the first place. So unless you go after that alarm that's in your system, you're always going to be, you're always going to be chasing your tail. You're always just going to be trying to make yourself feel better with these different, these different modalities that do help people feel better. Breath work helps you feel better. CBT helps you feel better, but it doesn't heal that alarm. To heal that alarm, you've got to find it first, treat it as if it is your younger self, because it is, and then see it, hear it, love it, and show it's protected, and show it that it's not back there anymore. You're not back in that situation. You know, you are in the present present moment. And that's and then that rewires your unconscious mind, these subcortical structures that don't understand English, they don't understand language, they understand feeling, and feeling is the language of the body. So once we start acclimatizing to this alarm and this Bessel van der Kolk talks about this in, in his book, the body keeps the score. We're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. What we're teaching them how to do is acclimatize to this, this state of alarm. So it doesn't fire them up into their brains so that they're trapped in worry for the rest of their lives. Right. Is there, is it worthy? Do you think to talk about how that alarm and the anxiety that we experience in a real immediate situation is 
a good thing at the beginning? Like, would you, would you say that? Would you, how would you phrase that to say like, you know, you think you're in a building and the fire alarm goes off. It's, uh, uh, it alerts you and it's terrifying. And you're like, oh man, I better get out of here because there's danger. And like, in this, mm -hmm. I like how you use the anxieties, like our alarm. Is there a way that we can talk about it? Not to like, just paint everything as toxic positivity, but like to say there is a good reason for this feeling or there was a good reason for this feeling and it there served was a good, you, yeah. but yeah. now we need to think there's no fire so we don't need a fire alarm do we is that is there like a strategy yeah. for people around that yeah so so it's basically finding the alarm with people i mean that's that's my main my main kind of goal early on with people to show them how to move away from their anxiety is where is your alarm in your system almost always in the midline you know um, throat heart solar plexus belly um, some people i've seen it across their shoulders funnily enough that across the shoulders um kind of alarm shows up with people who had to be kind of like the the adult of the house too soon you know like the nine-year-old girl that runs the whole house you know she has it, it's kind of like you're holding the like atlas you know holding the the weight of the the world on your shoulders and alarm is a it's a natural reaction that happens to us as children that we don't know what to do with that we push down because it's too uncomfortable and then it winds up showing up in the body and as the body is a reflection of the unconscious mind it makes perfect sense so the alarm in and of itself is something that we have to find and then once that we see and find that alarm we can use it and reverse engineer that alarm into okay how does this manifest as my younger wounded self and can i show that younger wounded self that we're not back there we never have to go back there and I will show you now as my adult self, hey, child, you, I will see you, love you, hear you, and protect you forever. There's no way we can separate. Because typically what happens is that when we, we get alarmed, we push it away. You know, and, and I, my little analogy is if you had a child come up to you in a grocery store that lost their parents holding their hands up to be held, of course you'd pick them up. But for some reason, we don't do that for ourselves. We don't, we don't soothe and console ourselves we're much more likely to judge abandon blame and shame ourselves which of course makes the alarm worse which of course makes the anxiety worse and then we start trying to treat the thoughts and we're the thoughts are out here i'll put this on the thing the thoughts are out here and the problem is here let's make sure i get it here the problem's here and the thoughts are out here so we're over here all the time trying to fix the thoughts and the problem is actually here so we never actually deal with the problem because we're always stuck in our thoughts so it's really using that alarm as a beacon for like, it's good that you have the alarm. It's, it's a beacon that shows you where your younger self is inside of you. Because like I say, that uh, the body is a representation of the unconscious mind. And we can find that trauma if we look into the body. And we, we don't necessarily need the story of the alarm. And my wife, Cynthia, is a trauma therapist. And she's like, and I asked her, like, do you need the story of the alarm? She goes, well, no, sometimes four and five-year-olds don't have a story. So all we have is the wisdom and story of the body. Where do you feel this? Can I, can I acclimatize you to that sense in your body? Can you find that child through that sense of alarm? And, and it works. And it works very, very well. Um, and it works much, much better than just depending on the cognitive structures like, say, CBT. Cognitive structures, cognitive therapies are great but they're not going to heal you. They'll help you cope, but they won't heal you. To heal you, you have to go back, find that child, find the alarm, resolve the alarm, show that child that they're seen, heard, loved, and protected from now on forever. 
that's how you heal from anxiety. That's the only way you heal. Every other way is coping. I love that it takes language out of it when the body can express these things without words. Um, just to circle back, you talk about all anxiety is rooted in this original separation. Mm-hmm. All anxiety at its root comes from separation as a child. So once I learned that and I started to think about my anxiety, I feel like I, I actually revert to that child. My reaction is similar to how I would have reacted as a child in that time. If I'm acting in out of fear or anger, I almost revert to my like five-year-old tantruming self or that's true or we do that i lose yeah. my kind of adult cognitive ability and of course retract my childlike yes. separation anxiety can you talk about that original separation anxiety like it it doesn't necessarily sure. have to be separation from a parent it could be from self or, or other things can you kind of unpack that a little bit so we yeah, can fully understand sure. it one of my favorite sayings is all overreactions are age regressions so if you see someone losing their shit, yeah. they have regressed to a thing. And then and then when you're having a fight with your partner or whatever, generally now you've become two seven year olds trying to figure out who's gonna drive, right? Yeah. Like it's not gonna work. Yeah. It's not gonna work. So yeah, I mean, a lot of it is that we go back into that place. And there is there's a, a brain structure called the insula. And it, we're starting to see more and more that this insula, which is kind of like the the mediator between the mind and the body and the body and the mind. So it's kind of like this translator. And we're starting to see that this holds kind of these physical programs in the body. So you may feel exactly like that five-year-old who's freaking out. You That that sensation in your body may be exactly the same sensation you felt as a five-year-old mediated by this insula. So we start reacting in the same kind of way. So you know, when I say all anxiety is separation anxiety, it's separation from yourself, but usually it results from a, some kind of separation from your parent. Um, and I have this little alarm mnemonic that I can, so uh, abuse, uh, loss, great loss, like uh, loss of a parent, um, divorce, parental divorce as a child, uh, abandonment is the next A, and then rejection, like bullying, um, you know, being the not favored child in the family. And then the M is for anything that made you mature too early as a, you know, as a, as a child. So these things create alarm, they create separation in us. And it's usually the parent's job to kind of say, Hey, you know what, you had this issue at school, you know, you're being bullied. We'll take care of that. We'll look after you. We'll make sure that that problem's resolved. But a lot of times kids won't tell their parent what's going on. So they suffer in silence and then the alarm just festers. So it becomes this separation typically from the attached, attuned parent. And that separation creates a tremendous amount of alarm in the system. When the alarm gets in the system, the child starts to think there's something wrong because you do feel the alarm. And our first reaction is typically to blame ourselves. Like, it must have been, must have been my fault. And we hear this thousands and thousands of times. And then that's when the split starts. So when you start, when you don't have yourself on board, when you don't have your parents, that's bad enough. When you don't have yourself on board on top of that, it's really setting the stage for all kinds of mental dysregulation and all kinds of mental illness. I mean, I write specifically in the book about anxiety, but it could be OCD, eating disorders, personality disorders. It's It all stems from some kind of separation. And that's not my quote, all anxiety is separation anxiety. That's from Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a uh, developmental psychologist over your way on the, on the mainland. Yeah. 
Hold on to your kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, we're f- mm-hmm. we're familiar with uh, Gordon New- Newfield's work uh, through some of his parenting stuff. Yeah, yeah. W- when we're talking about the 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 younger self that's often wounded or experiences some some loss or, or or trauma like what what is kind of the the ballpark age range of that like obviously from from even you had mentioned the work that your wife does and how it's sometimes even before like uh memories so like zero to are we like early teenage years zero to nine yeah. like what's kind of the window where we're most well, impressionable it's, re- it's hard to tell really because you know like we we use the age of seven as kind of like um when the child starts becoming more verbal before seven, very emotional. So there's not, there's not a whole lot of story for kids who had trauma before the age of seven. After seven, the kids have more of a story that can explain to you what happened a little bit better. Um, and then there's, you know, there's even in utero trauma, you know, if your mother's a drug addict, if, if even there's a study out now and, and this, and, and, and Gabor Mate wrote about this in, in his book about if the father of the child donates the sperm is depressed in the pre in the in the the peripartum period like the 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 pregnancy that has a very high risk of leading to emotional dysregulation in that child so more so even than the mother which is you know you think that that's kind of weird and maybe it's just because the mother has this baby to deal with and then they also have a baby and the husband to deal with as well so it's kind of like maybe there's there's a, a double whammy there as far as that goes but really it's it's kind of all ages you know i see a lot of people you know and here's another here's something that i i kind of wanted to bring up is that people will come to me and they'll say i had a great childhood like my my childhood was really good you know and um but i i have this horrible anxiety like what's that from and a lot of times what i'll do is i'll go back and go go back and ask your parents if you were separated from them before the age of five. Like if, if one of the parents went into hospital or you went into hospital or whatever, and so many times people come back, Oh, my mother, you know, forgot about this, but she had a gallbladder surgery when I was two and she had to go into the hospital. There was complications. She was gone for six weeks. And it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's not abuse. Like we, we start to think of trauma as this horrible, like you were abused or abandoned or beaten or whatever. You know, if you have a sensitive child, trauma can be losing your goldfish. You know, if you're, if you're a really sensitive human being, trauma isn't doesn't have to be. And yet I've seen kids who were fairly trauma resilient, not as sensitive, deal with something really serious in the family and come out, you know, being a family doctor, I would follow them over many years and they do fine. So it really that that sensitivity gene. And even with my grandkids, even with Abby and Angus, you know, Abby, she's five now. She's very sensitive. Angus is three and he's not. So it's funny in in my family, a lot of the, the, the twos are a boy and a girl. One of them is sensitive and the other one isn't. Same with me and my brother. Like I'm the sensitive one. He's not as sensitive. So it's, it really, so I show up with the anxiety. The sensitive one shows up with the anxiety. And there's this great saying that says, you know, the trauma of a family will land squarely in the heart of its most sensitive child which I love, you know, because that's, that's kind of, that's, we carry it, you know, the sensitive ones uh, in us uh, carry that trauma. So it doesn't have to be a huge trauma. Um, It's, it's, it's almost like a a mathematical equation, you know, like how sensitive you are 
based on how much trauma you had is going to show up with how much, you know, how your psyche is going to regulate itself as you get older. And that's the thing about does your nervous system change with sensitive children? It doesn't go back to normal after a trauma. It is kind of sensitized towards fear and towards panic and towards sympathetic, excuse me, activity. And that's just the way we're wired and we're all wired a little bit differently, but that's the universal thing I see with people that have chronic anxiety is they were all born sensitive. So for parents listening that have children in that window under seven, are yeah. there, are there practices that we can share with our, our kids to help yeah. support them? Yeah. Physical touch is huge. You know, physical touch I think is massive. And if you weren't, if you're a parent who wasn't really raised with physical touch, you almost have to academically bring it into your environment. And just physical touch is so important for kids, especially under seven. You know, I have this little practice that I get parents to do is they put um, a hand over their child's heart and then a, a hand over their back about the same level. So they their hands kind of encircle their heart. And they said, we're just going to sit here for like 30 seconds. And just you, you can just feel mom or dad. You can just feel how I have your heart, you know, that kind of thing. Physical touch is really important for kids. It helps them stabilize themselves. Um, the other thing that's really important for children is this concept that I learned from Gordon Newfeld as well called bridging. So you never, you never drop a child off at school or a sleepover or whatever without acknowledging the next connection. So you drop them off at school in the morning. Hey, I'm going to be right back here at 3.30 to pick you up. I'm looking forward to taking you over to, we'll, we'll go get some ice cream. Or, or later on tonight, we're going to watch that show. We're going to watch Lion Tales or whatever it's called or, or Shark Bait or whatever the, the latest thing is uh, for the kids these days. Like I'm going to pick you up and then we're going to go watch Shark Tales, you know? So the, the child always has this mental image of, oh, I'm never really alone because like when, when mom and comes, to get me or dad comes to get me, we're going to, we're going to watch shark tales or we're going to do this. So it's really important that, and that concept is called bridging. It's very important for kids, but touch for sure, uh, bridging for sure. And just, you know, making a lot of eye contact, you know, making a lot of like facial expressions because a lot of the kids these days are losing this ability to soothe themselves because they're not they're not maturing what's called the social engagement system in our in our brains and our bodies. So the social engagement system is eye contact, tone of voice, prosody of voice, body language, and facial expression. So when we're younger and we're playing with our friends, this is what we're doing all the time. You know, if they fall down and they cry, we kind of see that. If they score the winning goal, we see that. We kind of absorb, you know, these mirror neurons, among other things. The mirror neurons are kind of, they're overplayed, but they play a role in it. But it's it's creating this sense of of self, this sense of connection. And the kids now are so hooked into their screens, they're not getting that face-to-face -face contact. They're not getting that social engagement system matured. And the social engagement system is what helps us soothe others, but it also helps us soothe ourselves. So I'm not surprised that our kids at 13, 14, 15, 16 going into junior high school are freaking out because they haven't matured the system they need to soothe themselves and to soothe others. The little caveat to that is that empathy is going down among kids as well, because we don't, we haven't engaged them in this social engagement system anymore. It's not matured in their brain so much. So it creates even more altogether now separation and that what causes more anxiety. So that's why we have more anxiety in our kids is I believe is, is that the kids aren't getting the social engagement system 
um, matured because they're all, you know, facing their screens all the time. And they'd rather, you know, I was, I was driving yesterday and it was like, there's a, a sign that said, you know, kids playing. It's like, there haven't been kids playing on this street for 15 years. Like, don't tell me that the, there's kids playing on the street because there isn't. And yeah, and it, it's sort of sad that, that, you know, the kids aren't playing with each other anymore. They're on screens. Can we dive more into the effect of cell phones and screens, whether it's for kids or adults? Sure. Like, yeah, I, sure. For me, it almost serves. I know it's it's bad. Ultimately, there are obviously good aspects, but I use my phone both as a coping mechanism. It serves me both as like as a coping mechanism, and it also gives me anxiety. Um, sure. So it's almost like I'm using it. It's giving me anxiety, but then I need it again to cope with that anxiety, and it's this like. Yeah, what do, you need, what do you need me for? You basically just explained the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, you, you just fire. Yeah, we, we, you know, we, we on our phones in 30 seconds, we can go to Thailand, then we can go to Disneyland, then we can go to these 15 different places. So the dopamine system in our brain just goes nuts, right? So, so this immediate gratification system just goes crazy. And then, um, and then what they call the, the here and now chemicals like serotonin, oxytocin, vasopressin, the stuff that makes you like, oh, you know, after you have Thanksgiving dinner and you feel like, oh, that's really nice. You're hanging out with your family. Hopefully you have a good relationship with them. It's like you're feeling comfortable and that kind of stuff. This, these are the here and now chemicals. But we don't we don't sit in the here and now chemicals anymore. There's always dopamine is crushing us as a society in that there's always something better. There's always something better. So it creates anxiety and then it creates the treatment for anxiety, which is more distraction, more dopamine. Um, so we wind up burning out our brains. We wind up just sort of looking towards the next new thing rather than learning that staying in the moment actually has its own rewards but we don't stay in the moment long enough to really realize those rewards. And that's why, you know, again, society is struggling because we're looking continuously for this immediate gratification. And it's not, it's not healthy for our brains. It's not healthy for our sleep. It's not healthy for our connection. And it's certainly not healthy for our kids. Mm. Yeah. I still remember hearing, uh, hearing a thing again, one of these things, is it, is it true or is it some sort of colloquialism that, is true regardless of the story in and of itself but that steve jobs creator obviously of the iphone and and the genius behind apple and all of their amazing products that we all are inundated with but he had said that he would never let his kids have an iphone right because he knew exactly what it was going to do to them and had looked and cited you know these increasing levels of anxiety that's you know ubiquitous across modern societies now and even basically anywhere in the world you go people have cell phones in their hands in their pockets you know our eyes are glued to them and and this knowledge that he had as a creator of these devices yeah. saying you know my kids are my kids are not going to have them because i know what it will do to them yeah. like it's a very telling narrative it is it carries you know that this the smartphones are they they carry this this intense kind of hit this dopamine um, dopaminergic kind of hit mesolimbic dopamine system. It's emotional. It's emotional. And then at the same time, they create separation. So they create the need for more of themselves. And if we don't have, if we don't as a society start becoming more connected to each other, we will be connected more to our devices and we will depend more on artificial intelligence and we will go towards that because again, that's all dopamine. Like why would you want to sit and be, you know, sort of loved and cuddled and held 
when you could have, you know, you could take a trip to Thailand virtually, you know, or porn, like the the virtual porn. Like Bill Burr has these great this these great uh comic bits about, you know, women are gonna be, you know, men and women are gonna be obsolete. You know, we have this this AI porn, like there's gonna be no need for each other. Like, and we're already seeing that actually. We're already seeing not so much maybe the porn, but if you look at countries, birth rates are are declining. Like they're really, really declining and we need the younger people to come up. And again, this is why kids aren't playing in the street. This are just not the same number of kids anymore. So I went off on a bit of a tangent there. So, so to kind of follow that tangent a little bit, pornography, cell phones, you know, there's lots of things that we're addicted to now in society. Can you, can you bridge the connection between addiction and anxiety? Yeah, basically they're cousins. So if you don't get your needs met as a child, you will find maladaptive ways of getting your needs met, you know? So personality disorders, narcissism, this kind of way, it, it's a way of getting your needs met when you didn't get your needs met as a child. So we will, if we don't get it holistically through attunement, through connection, whatever, we will find ways of getting our needs met and addictions basically are exactly that. If you don't feel loved and connected and attached to a family or attached to people, you're, you're going to, there's a void there and it, it's a deep void, but it can be filled superficially in the moment with dopaminergic things, you know, porn, uh, shopping, um, you know, anything really that provides this sort of instantaneous hit is a bit of a salve for that lack of connection. And then it just creates more of itself. Like we were talking earlier, it creates more separation, which, so you need more of the addiction to assuage the, the separation when really the treatment is be more connected. How can you be more connected? You know, that that's really what it comes down to is and it's and it's difficult. We get out of practice with connection, I think, you know, in our in our even in our personal relationships, we get out of practice with physical connection, hugs, I, staying with your eye contact with your partner for 15 seconds, you know, just staying with that connection is we're just out of practice. And it's basically eroding, you know, and it's easy to fall out of practice with this stuff because there's always something else that's fun to do on the computer or on some sort of screen or whatever. And we do love novelty. Our amygdala loves novelty. So, you know, and our amygdala mediates a lot of addiction too. So we're always looking for something novel as opposed to the here and now kind of pleasant, connected, contented emotions we're kind of losing that and of course when you lose that fear has to fill it up feel fear has to fill up the the void that's left there by by you know pushing love away from yourself yeah i love i love that love because i feel like through the pandemic we were disconnecting and we need to relearn to connect whether that's to ourselves or to our community or to our family or our neighbors mm -hmm. like I used to hug everybody, you know, I was like, I'm no. the hugger. And now like right. people are kind of weird about that, you know? So now yeah. you like kind of stand awkwardly apart. You're like, Hey, how's it going? And we need to, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone needs to hug everybody again, but like we need to get comfortable. No, it's not with... a bad idea though. <laughs> All right. It's not a bad idea. You know, it doesn't have to be everybody too. It just can be your, like I was saying earlier about your kids, you know, just be more physical with them. Be, you know, they're, kids are feeling creatures, you know, really make them feel 
you know, connected to with touch. It's so important to have that that sensation. You know, if you look at the way that the brain is structured, you know, the, the spinal thalamic tracks and the and the the tracks for pain and temperature in the body and stuff. Like it's really we are sensation based beings, and now we're we're trying we're being forced down this cognitive path, this brain path all the time, as opposed to sensation. And sensation is where life is. Sensation, your body is where feeling is. Your body is where emotion is. And if if we're losing that, what we'll do is we'll start trying to fill that up with more cognition, with more novelty, with more dopamine. And that's that's a dangerous road. It's a, you know it's a self fulfilling prophecy and it's a dangerous road. So yeah, be more physical, hug more, um, just just make more eye contact, just feel more connected even if it's just in your mind even if you just tell yourself i'm going to feel more connected to my partner today i'm going to feel more connected to my kids today i'm going to feel more connected to my parents today you know um it's it's really making that intention is really important because we're losing it yeah and and how interesting too like when we think about the last couple of years and obviously we're seeing you know we've seen increasing numbers of of people identifying their anxiety through COVID and all of that and how it was, yes, a, a legitimate, there's legitimate concern for people with their health and wellness, but it was also that, you know, w one another as human beings became these unsafe entities yeah. where you yeah. couldn't be close yeah. to someone. You literally yeah. couldn't, don't handshake, don't high five. They could don't kill hug. you. They could kill you. Literally, yeah. they could kill you. And yep. like at a time, at a time where you typically think when there's a crisis, we need to stay together and the classic line which in some ways i i think was was an appropriate one was like you know be be together by being apart or whatever like support each other by being apart yeah. but it's so counterintuitive to like what we actually needed within us which was to 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 literally figuratively like come together be together mm -hmm. and i think that 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 had had and is having really significant effects on our stress our overall mental health and for sure on our, our anxiety levels knowing yeah that, you know the person you know, it's really interesting when you, when you listen to people who you know lived through the second world war and stuff some people will say that was the best time in their life because everybody was connected like you there was a common enemy like you, you know if you were british you hated the germans if you were germans you hated the, the americans or whatever but you came together as a group you know, you came together as a collective and, and we have this this strong desire. Human beings have this strong desire to worship and to be connected to each other. And, you know, the worship thing is starting to go off because, you know, organized religion and that kind of stuff is getting a worse and worse name all the time. And the connection stuff is starting to become really a challenge as well. So it's really important to to sort of bring that intention back to stay, even if it's just on a micro level in your own life, how can I be more connected to, to myself today? Like, how can I be kinder to myself today? How can I look after myself today? How can I do something from, and it's so cliche, it's so over, you know, oh, self-care, it's just so, it's so overdone, but it's exactly what we need to do. Is, is start with yourself, start with connecting with yourself. And once you feel that connection in yourself, you're much more likely to be open for connection to other people. But if you're close to yourself, you're going to be close to everybody. I guarantee you. Well, I like, I like how you've talked in the past about parenting ourselves, seeing ourselves mm -hmm. as, as that child. And I think that gives, 
grace and forgiveness to ourselves in a way if you can be like okay i'm gonna pick myself up and i'm gonna be soft and kind and and nurture i don't need to be this hard rigid adult i can be like my soft mother or my soft father and i can kind of hug myself and love myself how i would my child um you talked about the physical being physical with our children are with each other and having that physical connection. But one thing to take that to, to another step, when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, I find if I, it's maybe a hack, but if I go for a run or do something physical, it, it kind of gets me in my body and works through that anxiety. It processes it. Is there, is there, steps to that about going for a walk or going for a run or lifting some weights or just sitting outside in nature in the sun that helps us process these things? Yeah. Well, it's kind of breaking the cycle because if you're just sitting at home, chances are you're getting more and more wound up by your own worries, by your own fearful projection of the future. You'll just get drive yourself deeper and deeper into that hole. So if you get out and you get into sensation as opposed to cognition, you know, you start looking around, uh, you know, putting your hand on your chest, really focusing on your breath, like really focusing on sensation. You break that cognitive loop that's in there that the brain sort of is, will tell you, hey, we can solve your problems by thinking about it, which is the big lie, because it can't. You can't solve, you know, you know, rumination and more thinking with more thinking. It doesn't work that way. So when you exercise, you bring your mind and body back together. That's one thing. You also break that cycle of that rumination that will lock. If you have a tendency towards anxiety, rumination is just like, it's the natural default program that your brain will start running. You'll, you'll be caught up in worry for 15 minutes before you even realize that you're in it. So yeah, sometimes it's important to just sort of, you know, put your shoes on, you know, do Mel Robbins thing, five, four, three, two, one, put your shoes on, go outside, walk around the block, you know, go find your, if you have an animal, if you have a pet, like go find, I have three dogs. So go find one of the dogs and just cuddle with them, you know, look them in the eyes, connect with them, um, do something that gets you into your senses as opposed and gets you out of your cognition because your cognition is just going to sink you deeper and deeper there's no that's the big thing is that that your brain will tell you it has the answer when all it does is have more of the problem and and we just get and we get sucked into this thing and our brain just you know it's like lucy and the football and peanuts like the brain says this is the time that you know we're going to fix your problem by thinking about it and if you could think fix your problem by thinking about it you probably would have figured it out already so it's mostly the unknown and the uncertainty which for people with anxiety, uncertainty is is probably the worst thing. So we will pick a worry as opposed to leaving something uncertain. That's how that's how uncomfortable we are with uncertainty. And then of course that just traps us in that cognitive loop over and over and over again too. So yeah, getting out, um, putting on your shoes, getting outside, looking up when you're outside because ten we tend to when we're feeling down or anxious, we tend to look down at the ground. Look up, look you know see if you can bring stuff into your you know cognitive awareness do something differently than you would normally do walk a little bit differently you know just make the connection that you're gonna you know look for all the blue things that you're seeing around like do things differently because if you do it the same way your cognitive loop will lock you into that cognitive loop over and over so the more novelty you can put into it 
the more likely you're going to break that cycle. And that's the reason why when you do go outside, when you do exercise, you break that loop. You're not, you're not a hundred percent in that cognitive loop anymore. Now, maybe you're 50% in it, but you're also 50% in, you know, working out with weights or being outside or riding your bike. And, and what about um, circumstantial anxiety? Like you've got a first date or a job interview, or maybe you lost your job. Like what about something that's like isolated to a circumstance yeah. and we know it's going to be, it has like an, a start and an end date. Are there like breath work or embodiment techniques or self-love techniques that we can do to feel more grounded in these circumstances? Yeah, I mean, Andrew Huberman talks about the physiological sigh, which is two quick sniffs in through your nose and a long exhale, you know. And you'll notice when people are crying and releasing energy and that sort of stuff, all of a sudden they'll go, and then they'll take the deep breath. You know, we're wired that way. So I do this little thing with my anxious peeps and I show them this this technique where you you take in three quick breaths through your nose and then you hold it at the top. And then you close your teeth and you breathe out through your teeth like and you make a hissing noise so it looks like this you go and as you make the hissing noise you imagine in your mind's eye like an overinflated balloon like decompressing right and i used to use this for people that had white coat syndrome for blood pressure because right? their blood pressure would be up, they'd be freaked out. Gonna, I'm the doctor with my white coat on, taking their blood pressure. It's amazing. You could sometimes drop blood pressure 40, 50, 60 points by just doing that that exercise. So that's what I add to the physiological sigh as well. Like do it, make it three in through your nose because you really want to expand your lungs. There's after you get stressed for a while, your chest constricts and it gets more and more constricted. And that constriction sends a message up to your brain saying, hey, we're not safe. So as soon as you expand your chest like that, that signal goes away and you actually send another signal out to your brain like, hey, we're okay. You know, we're taking full deep breaths. We're okay. And then when you hold your breath at the top for a second, you show that you are actually in control of your breath, holding your breath for a second, as opposed to the anxiety breathing you. I remember going to um, Byron Katie's uh, school for the work back in March of 2015. And she said something really profound. She said, you know, when you're anxious, your anxiety is breathing you. You're not breathing for yourself. So when you hold your breath a little bit at the top, you're showing your breath, like, hey, I'm in control. And then when you breathe out through your teeth, that slight pressure, back pressure from not breathing out all your air creates another sense in your lungs like hey this is okay you know it sends a message up to your brainstem like you're okay so if you do a bunch of rounds of that like three sniffs in hold low breath out do like five rounds of that it'll definitely calm you down no two ways about it amazing all these first dates that are going to go so much better now (laughs) so much better Saving, so much better saving first first dates three quick uh, inhales and then a hold and an exhale one or three quick shots of tequila you know <laughs> yeah. that'll that'll help too but <laughs> but i i think the uh, breasts probably a little healthier for you yeah for sure um okay i've got a couple more small questions and then we'll okay. we'll kind of wrap things up uh dean's sure. also a high school teacher and i you know i think the future generations are, are so important. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were in charge of the school systems, let's say for all of Canada, are there are there any th- things that you would implement so that we can be 
a more healed, functioning, yeah. loving society? Yeah, I mean, I think teaching like those breath techniques that I just did, you know, just throughout the day, just doing that, teaching them how to check in with themselves, like how, how are you feeling right now? If you're feeling anxious, that's okay. You know, it's just like just getting used to the fact that you you do actually have agency. You can actually look at yourself as an objective entity and say, hey, I'm feeling really good right now. Okay, how does that feel in your body? Feeling good. Okay. Okay. I'm feeling really jealous right now. Okay. How does that feel in your body? Like real self-awareness from this sort of, from this sort of sensation based life rather than this cognitive based life. Right. So it's just teaching them how to check in with themselves. I have this little thing on my iPhone where if I'm going through a rough patch, I will set it when I wake up for somewhere between three and four hours and it goes off at say three hours and 20 minutes. And I say to myself, where are you right now? Like, are you feeling good? If you're feeling good, how does that feel in your body? What does it feel like to feel good? Because so often we only pay attention to our body when we feel bad. Like we just assume that it's, so when it feels, what is, what does your body feel like when it feels good? Okay. And if it does, if it does feel bad, okay, where is that in my body? Can I put my hand over it? Can I sort of connect with that part of me that's asking for my attention? rather than just distract, go off and do something else. So it's really, you know, I would teach a lot of more of, of body and breath awareness for sure. And then, you know, in a perfect world, it would be like, okay, where are your traumas come from? You know, what, what did you grow up with? Did you grow up with an abusive parent? Did you grow up with a narcissistic parent? Did you grow up with a parent that never hugged you? You know, what are your patterns? And, and realize that it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to recognize your own patterns and, and do your best not to pass those down to your kids. Do your best to heal them in yourself so that you don't pass it down to a future generation. That's probably the short answer. Yeah, it's amazing. Like I work with senior senior high school students and it's incredible the language and understanding they have around anxiety and even like intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. and all of these things. Like it didn't exist in totally. my vernacular as a high school student at all. And so I'm yep. always so impressed, um, but also kind of you're just struck by the levels of, the, you know, they have this language and they know it because so many of them are experiencing yeah. it. And it's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So giving them giving them tips and tools is is, is huge. I was even thinking about that. Uh, the breath thing that you were doing with us before being like, oh, this would be good on like yeah. test day, you know, before Absolutely. we write everybody yeah. three breaths yeah. in, hold it. And exhale yeah. five times before you yeah. get your test. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and I bet you that would make a big difference. And I'll bet you, you know, in a couple of the kids in your class, they'll continue that for the rest of their life. Yeah, they'll no see doubt. it works. And then and it really does like that body awareness, that sensation that you're safe in your body. That's something that it's, it's worth the it's weight in gold. Like it's just being able to regulate, self-regulate rather than depending on your phone, rather than depending on something else, you know, being able to self-regulate is a gift and it's not really being taught in a, in a way that, you know, our kids can, can really benefit from at this point. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. Dean's got a closing question that we ask everyone, but before, before that, just for fun, I've you know, I, I love travel stories and I love traveling and I know hey. um, India and, and spending some time in a temple was, you know, part of your journey. Um, can you share just like a short story about uh, your time in India, maybe an experience or a learning or or something that you brought home to kind of your own your own learning? I think for me, you know, I went to India at my lowest point. I had I'd 
I ruptured my left Achilles tendon. I had left medicine. I was like really at a very, very low point. And just getting there was, was an ordeal, you know, just, you know, Vancouver, I think I went Vancouver, uh, Beijing, Beijing, Bangkok, Bangkok, uh, Madras, you know, it was, it was just this, and I was already stressed out and strung out and uh, just showing myself that I could do that, you know, has been a real, it's been a real uh, confidence booster for me. Because when I went through China, there was, you know, issues with my passport, there was issues with my, my visa, there was all the even though I was just checking through. And then I would go through, I remember in China, um, they say, okay, this is they would point me towards this door, right? And then I would go through that door. And then they would point me back to the other door. And I would, you know, they I, so I would go back to the other door. And it's like, and then they would point me to the original door. And they did that like six times. It's like, I don't know what you're saying. Like, I have no idea what you're saying. All I know is that guy points me here and you point me there. So the frustration level was so high. So I had to just really at the, at kind of like my emotionally most dysregulated point, just sort of take a breath and go, okay, this will end, you know, I will get to where I need to go. But right now, you know, it's, I just have to sort of rely on myself. And it reminded me of, you know, being in a merge, having like some sort of like trauma come in and just having to be this cool, calm, collected, you know, and that, that actually comes from dopamine. There's, there's a dopamine circuit in your brain. That's a dopamine control circuit and emergency doctors have it. Emergency room physicians have it where they just, things are just flying everywhere and they are just like focused on like, this is what I got to do. And just, you know, learning that I had that in me was just so important, you know, maybe even more important than what I learned in India, which is a fair amount, but, but just that whole, just the trip getting there. I think I learned more in that trip about myself than I had learned in the previous 10 years, probably. Wow, mm. that's so cool. Do you have any um, steps of like self-love that you practice? Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah, it's mostly intention. It's like you get up and, and you just make the intention today. Okay, how am I going to look after myself today? What's one thing? Like, I love massages. There's a place that opened up like... Uh, a, a new um, fitness that has physio, massage, a gym, all that kind of stuff, like three blocks from my house. So I go there once a week. So massages are really important to me. Um, there's this uh, oats company called Holos. In, I think I think they're in the States as well, H-O-L-O-S. And I don't get any kickbacks from them. I don't get anything. But basically, I have a hard time eating in the morning. I have always have had a hard time eating in the morning. So it's basically these oats. You put milk in there uh, or, you know, oat milk or whatever you want the night before. It's a little jar with these things. So the oats absorb all the, the milk. And in the morning, you've got a ready-made like breakfast there because I'm I'm notorious at not eating breakfast, like going till like one or one thirty. My wife will say, "Have you eaten today?" It's like, "No, I'm doing shit," you know. And uh, so, like, I started eating breakfast and that kind of thing too. Um, I make these meditations for myself. I have a little studio upstairs in my house, otherwise known as my wife's walk-in closet. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, I make little meditations for myself and I've done that for many years. So if there's something I'm struggling with, I'll make a little meditation where I, I give myself a hypnotic induction. Uh, I might even do like a yoga nidra, you know, process where like, imagine a blue peacock feather and a, and a red sunset and all these sort of things in my mind while I'm still relaxed. And then I just sort of give myself suggestions as far as how can you look after yourself today? And 
it's really that's what it comes down to that your relationship with yourself is is the ultimate relationship like if you don't have a good relationship with yourself you can be a people pleaser and that kind of thing but you're not you know you're going to put yourself into a, a real high risk category for health issues and all that kind of stuff you have to look after yourself because if you don't look after yourself you won't be able to look after other people and it's just something that that i had to learn um, and I'm still recently like just getting better at it all the time because for me, I had to look after both my parents. So I still have this kind of people pleaser, you know, I come last kind of thing. And I'm just learning now how that's going to change. The last thing I'll, I'll sort of tap that off is like, nobody's coming to save you. Like you have to do your own self-care. Um, I have this thing that, um, I think for those of us who didn't get our needs met as children, there's a fantasy in our mind that some magical other spouse, you know, whoever is going to come along and all of a sudden take care of us. And it's like, no, it's up to you. It's up to you to look after yourself. Because if you don't look after yourself, you're not going to attract someone who's going to look after you. You're going to attract a, another sort of person who will take from you. And, you know, it is, you know, we have these patterns uh, that we're, and if we're not aware of them, we'll just keep replicating them for the rest of our lives. Hmm. That's so important. Yeah. Self-love, self-awareness and, and moving, moving towards wholeness. Yeah. yeah. With, with a good breakfast in our belly. With a good <laughs> breakfast. Yeah, for sure. And I don't always eat it, but it's there. I know it's there. So just knowing it's there is, is helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. It just shows that there's so many simple practical things that we can do to look Absolutely. after ourselves. They're yeah, easy. That are yeah. easy. Yeah. It doesn't have to be hard. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to go to India. <laughs> yeah <laughs> we can't on our phones now though and yeah, uh, yeah you know. that's true <laughs> that's right yeah well uh we've been so appreciative of you sharing your time with us uh your stories your wisdom um it's incredible just just hearing from you these these different ways that we can start to go back to our point of of anxiety or trauma or whatever first thing you know we experienced that kind of gave us this wheel that we spin over and over but know that we don't have to be stuck there. And I love that you have this kind of different approach than maybe the traditional methods of, of coping with anxiety, but rather your, your desire to help people truly heal. Um, it's just, it's so powerful and awesome. And so thank you for the work that you do in the world. And thank you for um, being here with us today. Thanks, team. Yeah, I mean, if people want to find me, just uh, the anxiety MD. That's the best way to, of finding me. It's my Instagram handle at the anxiety MD. It's my my website, the anxiety MD, and my book, Anxiety RX. I mean, if you want, if you have anxiety and you don't understand why, that book will really help you understand what what's going on in your mind and body and what you can do about it too. Fantastic. So we love we love to end the podcast with this kind of like consistent closing sure. question. Zach and I uh, came up with this idea as, as we kind of shared even pre-pod just out on a run saying we would have these great conversations and just wanted to share it and be able to have conversations with people like yourself. Um, and one day we were running and Zach was like, I think I, I think I got the name for the pod. He's like, we should call it a little more good. And I mm -hmm. instantly just knew like, yes, this amazing. I love it. It's everything that we want to be about and do in the world. Sure. We just love, we love to hear from our guests. Like, what is that little phrase a little more good? What does that mean to you? I think it's just paying attention to yourself and really looking after like, how can I just do a little more good for myself? How can I look after myself in a way that I become a priority, that the awareness of my own self 
I can, it, it kind of reminds me of that sort of 10% more, right? Like it's just, you, you don't have to go to India. You don't have to, but you can, you know, intention is so important, especially when you're engaging those sort of subcortical feeling structures in your, in your nervous system. Intention is so important. So just making that intention to treat yourself a little, a little bit more better. Amazing. Well, Dr. Kennedy, so grateful for you, for the work that you create. I, I feel like you're, you're healing individuals and healing communities and your work is, is what the world needs in, in today's emotional climate. Uh, I hope everybody reads your book. I think if, if that was, if everybody read your book, the world would be a better place. So keep teaching what you're teaching and uh, I hope we can all follow in the, the ripples of the wave that you're creating. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Dean. Like, uh, anytime you guys know how to find me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kennedy. You're welcome, guys. All right. There you have it. Dr. Russell Kennedy sharing his story, his wisdom, his teachings on all things anxiety related. I really hope that um, that conversation resonated with you. Uh, as many of us in this mess, mess of a world that we live in now are experiencing unprecedented levels of anxiety, which can lead to all kinds of dis-ease and unease in our life. So hopefully um, some of what Dr. Russell Kennedy was was talking about um, sounded like good news for you and some tips and takeaways for you all to increase your overall health and well-being as human peoples. There we go. Yes, so grateful for Dr. Russell Kennedy and his time and his teachings, um, his book, uh, anxiety rx if you want to take this journey even farther farther is uh incredible it's kind of a practical step-by-step toolkit in healing and understanding your own anxiety um you can you can head to his website at um the anxietymd.com to learn more about his book his podcast and more about his practice um yeah, I encourage you all, if this episode resonated, to kind of do a deep dive on, on Dr. Russell Kennedy and, and continue that, that healing journey for yourself. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, we are always grateful for any likes, reviews, subscriptions, wherever you get your podcast. Send it to a friend, a neighbor, send it to your mom, your dad, whoever, whoever you think could benefit from a little less anxiety in their life. That's right. A little less anxiety, a little more good. Grateful for each and every one of you listening. If you made it this far, thank you so much. We look forward to serving up another great episode to you next week. So wherever you are, whoever you are, stay good, y'all. Peace.